Hello, welcome in. Today I have another episode of History's Great Mysteries. I am your host, Nick. But before we get started today, I have an announcement to make. First off, I want to thank everyone immensely for their support and interest in this podcast. Anything that's been shown towards me, I greatly appreciate it. It would be like more than worth it to me if just one or two people enjoyed listening to my podcast. So I'm beyond grateful to see the growth that has occurred and the enjoyment that people get out of it. Uh, but with that being said, my announcement centers around some real-world events that are happening in my life right now. Suffice to say that I am stepping into a huge new chapter of my life uh, this upcoming week, next week. I'll be, you know, this huge new chapter, I'm trying to stay a little bit vague, is um, going to require pretty much all of my time and effort. Um, I mean, essentially what I'm doing is I'm going into this new grad school um, and it's an entirely new country as well, so I'm about to be pulled in a thousand different directions. Um, and with every podcast, with every episode of this podcast, I want to give 100% effort, you know, and I don't think I could do that with, with this new chapter of my life. So, with that being said, I'm going to be taking a bit of a break from releasing new episodes. Um, I'm sorry that I can't give you a definitive date on when I'll be back making more content, but if you want to be kept in the loop, I will be vocal over on my Facebook page, History's Great Mysteries. So again, I'll be halting the release of new episodes until I settle a bit, at least a little bit, with my new life, and I have the time and effort available to make quality content. But with all that said, I'm still going to deliver the best episode I can today and leave us off on a good note, hopefully. So what's it going to be about? Well, when I was considering this episode, I realized that for the most part, my mysteries so far have neglected a huge portion of this world. So, but what better way than to dive in, and I speak of, oh god, I didn't even mean to make this pun, dive in, I speak, of course, of the countless underwater mysteries that are out there, uh, the mystical tales that have unfolded beneath the waves, and that is the focus of my podcast today. So buckle in, put on your scuba gear, and get ready for a few of the most famous underwater mysteries. first mystery here will begin in the Baltic Sea in the year of 2011 when a shocking discovery was made by a group of treasure hunters who were searching the sea bottom for sunken ships. This team called Ocean X was based out of Sweden and they routinely made dives such as this one to search for valuables in sunken ships. However, during a dive on June 19th, the team discovered something quite different. At first, uh, they were just receiving sonar images of the sea bottom, and these images have been made public for anyone who's curious enough. A quick Google search of the Baltic Sea anomaly will reveal these sonar uh, images along with the eventual close-up graphic renditions of the object. Um, so, you know, these images are quite mind-boggling to say the least. I mean, you have to put yourself in the shoes of these divers, right? They're standing up on the deck of the boat. They're looking at this boring sonar feed that's just giving them flat sea bottom, right? When all of a sudden, this object slides into view. And when I say object, I don't really give it size justice. So, like, let me try to explain it here for you. This thing is huge, roughly 70 meters or 210 feet across. 
also roughly circular in shape. It's just sticking up out of the sea floor. It seems to be very solid in nature, like it's some sort of rock or metal. And perhaps most strangely of all is the design of this thing. Like I said, it's, it's roughly circular, but it's also flat. And on its outer surfaces, it has these linear grooves and these lines that crisscross the object. And you have to consider this. These lines appear to be perfectly straight, cut out of like perfect perpendicular angles to one another. And you can appreciate why this caught the eye of the Ocean X team up on that boat. There's like these perfect 90 degree angles that they don't, that doesn't occur naturally in nature like that, right? So all of these grooves and these lines cut into this enormous object. Um, and it actually began to look like something familiar. So I'm assuming that most of you out there have seen Star Wars. For those of you who haven't, I assume that you at least know kind of what the Millennium Falcon looks like. It's like on all the posters, right? It's this big old circular spaceship looking thing. Well, picture in your head the top of the Millennium Falcon and now put that at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. That is literally what you're looking at here and I'm not exaggerating. It legitimately bores an uncanny resemblance to the Millennium Falcon just in shape in look, in size, everything. So as I'm sure you can understand, speculation along the lines of alien UFO wreckage immediately comes to people's minds. And if you've pulled up the pictures, I'm sure you can appreciate this speculation. So obviously, you're wondering, uh, you're wondering like, all right, what has the research shown? Surely the scientists have been down there and would want you know, material samples, more high-tech imagery, or something along those lines, right? Well, the case gets even weirder when it's reported that uh, the Ocean X team, many of their instruments and their electronics cease to function when it's brought within 200 meters of the anomaly. They claim that this is the reason that it's been near impossible to garner any concrete information about the object. But a separate team of divers not associated with Ocean X eventually made an expedition to the object and came back with samples that were then immediately put to testing. And what was found on this object, it's essentially it was found out that it's not metal, but rather it's a natural rock material, right? Sandstone, different rocks. Um, and furthermore, it's highly speculated via these samples that much of the material is also volcanic in nature. This information led more scientists to offer up their conclusions on what the anomaly could be, uh, most of them landing on a non-UFO explanation. Most notable of these scientists is Volker Bruchert, a professor of geology in Sweden, who claims the object is nothing more than a volcanic glacial deposit, and it's 100% natural. Since then, there have been a plethora of news agencies, research teams, and experts who have tried their hand at explaining the anomaly, but until more concrete evidence can be lifted from the object, its true nature will remain a mystery. However, that still leaves us, us with room to speculate, so as will be done with the other mysteries I have for today's podcast, I will now jump into the common theories that are surrounding it, and it's up to you and I to figure out what we believe. So the first theory here that I hinted to at the end there is that this Baltic Sea anomaly is easily explained through natural causes, or that it is geological in nature. It's well known that the Baltic Sea region was carved out, changed, and somewhat created as a result of the last ice age. And it is known that during this ice age, uh, large glaciers moved across the region, carrying with them rocks and even potentially, hint hint, volcanic rocks. 
the professor I had mentioned earlier, Volker Bruchert, uh, had this to say about the whole scenario, and I quote, Because the whole northern Baltic region is so heavily influenced by glacial thawing processes, both the feature and the rock samples are likely to have formed in connection with glacial and post-glacial processes. There are many geologists who share his conclusion, while there are also others in the field who believe it may be the result of gas venting from the sea floor, a process that occurs in volcanically active areas. Either theory here is a non-supernatural explanation, and on the surface, yes, I do agree that the logic is pretty solid. It makes sense. I'm not trying to refute that evidence or these conclusions, but what no scientist has been able to explain thus far, at least so far in my research, is the straight lines, the grooves, the corners, the angles. Like, that does not look natural at all. How did that happen? Uh, and through my research on this topic, the closest I saw anyone come to explaining that was that, well, we can't fully trust the sonar imaging that was taken by the OceanX team because it's possible that their cameras weren't calibrated correctly. And like, okay, I mean, no one really has dove here and takes and taken subsequent imagery of the object. Uh, like, essentially what I'm trying to say is that people have been to this object. Um, a million people have been to this object, right? And no one's refuting the images. Everyone agrees on what it looks like. That's like the one thing that people can agree on is what it looks like. These these weird designs, the angles, this, the straight lines. No one really refutes that. So to say that like, oh, the imagery was wrong doesn't really make a lot of sense. If, if, if it actually didn't look like it looks in the image, then it would have come out by now. But everyone agrees that it, it does look very strange. Um, so that really hasn't been explained. And that's why it sticks with me. I mean, that's what the that's the consideration that sticks with me in this case. Like, why does it look man-made? Or at least constructed? Because as you'll see in this next theory here, not everyone believes that it was made by man at all. So of course, now I will fully go into the UFO theory. This theory was almost immediately brought to the limelight upon seeing the images of the Baltic Sea anomaly. Frankly, it just looks like an alien spacecraft. But is there any further credence to the theory? Well, interestingly enough, the OceanX team reported quote-unquote skid marks on the sea floor leading up to the object. And when I took a closer look at the original sonar image, yeah, sure enough, there are these undeniable markings, the exact length of the object leading straight up to it, like a skid mark. Of course, believers look at this and say, well, those are the crash marks. This is clearly some ancient alien spacecraft that crashed into the Baltic Sea area ages ago. Uh, this could also explain the angles and the corners that don't seem natural at all, right, if it's made by some alien race. Every effort to disprove the UFO uh, theory, such as the material collection, uh, you know, all these different scientists that are coming out and, and explaining it, well, that's just a uh, cover-up. This is a giant UFO cover-up. Of course, they're going to come up they're going to come out with these, with these, uh, with this information. That's just an attempt, a global, governmental attempt to hide the truth from the public, right? That's what they would say. But if you don't want to stretch it that far, it is hard to get past uh, the material consideration. Like they found out that it wasn't metal; it's naturally occurring rock with some volcanic rock mixed in there. That does not point to alien spacecraft at all. Also, the skid marks still make sense if you believe that it was a glacier that deposited the object there. And for me personally, that's enough for me to turn the page on, on this theory, but then it opens the page onto a new one. What if I'm to believe that this object was actually man-made, 
but it's also not metal. It's made out of naturally occurring rock. Well, then I must begin to consider the possibility that the Baltic Sea anomaly is a remnant of a long lost ancient civilization that has been buried beneath the waves. Could the object be a building or some sort of structure belonging to a long lost civilization? This would explain the designs, the angles. It would explain why the object is actually just rock. That's what they used back then. They didn't manufacture metal, right? And it was used in construction by these ancient humans in some sort of building, right? However, this theory is a bit of a double-edged sword in that it can't be disproven, well, because there's not enough evidence to disprove it, but it also can't be proven because there's definitely not enough evidence to prove it. There also doesn't seem to be any other indication of human construction in that area around the anomaly. You know, it's kind of surprising to think that you'd only see this one thing. Um, and granted, you know, it would take a ton more investigation. There hasn't been a ton of investigation yet around this object, and it would take a lot more time and effort to be sure about that. So this theory remains just kind of one big question mark. For me personally, I have to learn I have to lean more towards the uh, the glacier theory as of right now with you know everything that we know about the object which granted isn't a lot future testing and research is bound to reveal more about the anomaly that we don't know now and then perhaps we can get to some concrete answers but the idea of a long lost civilization buried under the ocean is still tantalizing it's an idea that has been tossed around quite a bit before as I'm sure you're all aware. I mean, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say those words, a lost civilization beneath the waves? Well, of course, you think about our next mystery in today's episode. The lost city of Atlantis. Is there any truth to it? Could it have actually existed? Well, if you think this is a far-fetched fable, you may be surprised to hear the staggering amount of legitimacy behind it. So where did it all begin? Where did the tale of Atlantis start? Well, the oldest known written record of the city is within the works of the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Plato wrote extensively about the lost city of Atlantis in 360 BC, and it was from his writings that the legend evolved and grew into the story that we know of today. And through the ages, there has been no shortage of effort to find and prove the story of Atlantis. Geologists, historians, archaeologists, explorers, and anyone in between has tried and thus far failed to find remnants of this lost city. But the same failure was true for the mythical city of Troy up until about the mid-1800s, that is. We've all heard of Troy either from the movie um, The Iliad by Homer or simply because we know about the Trojan horse, the tale of the Trojan horse, but for centuries many believed that the city of Troy was nothing more than a myth. A fable until one German archaeologist found it and proved that it indeed was a real place so it is definitely not unthinkable to allow the possibility that the same thing could happen with Atlantis we're just waiting for the breakthrough but where do the facts start what do we know about this place and let me begin to explain well actually let me just read the words of Plato directly to you exactly as he wrote it and there's something that I was kind of debating whether or not I should do because it's kind of, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and read old ancient Greek Plato to you all the time. But a lot of like sources and, and through the research, research that I did, they all talk about Plato and his writings, but none of them actually showed you the writings. So it was all kind of going based on what they thought it meant. And there's a lot of room for interpretation when it comes to these writings. So I figured 
the most straightforward way to give it to you is to just read it to you and let you be the judge of its overall meaning. Okay, so here I'll start. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days the Atlantic was navigable, and there was an island situated in front of the straits, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together, and was the way to other islands, and from these you might pass to the whole of the opposite continent which is surrounded the true ocean. For the sea which is within the Straits of Heracles is only a harbor, having a narrow entrance, but that other is real sea, and the surrounding land may most be truly called a boundless continent. Now in this island of Atlantis there was a great and wonderful empire, which had rule over the whole island and several others, and over parts of the continent. And furthermore, the men of Atlantis had subject, subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. This vast power gathered into one endeavored to subdue at a blow our country and yours and the whole of the region within the straits. And then, Solon, your country shone forth in the excellence of her virtue and strength among all mankind. She was preeminent in courage and military skill, and was the leader of the Hellens. And when the rest fell off from her, being compelled to stand alone after having undergone the very extremity of danger, she defeated and triumphed over the invaders, and preserved those from slavery who were not yet subjugated, and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwell within the pillars. But afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sink into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. For which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the land. So right off the bat, we had that pretty detailed description of physically where Atlantis was located. He describes it being situated in front of the pillar, the pillar of Heracles, which is more commonly known as the Pillars of Hercules, or the Strait of Gibraltar. This is the narrow strip of ocean separating the southern tip of Spain from Africa. So for this reason, many searchers have centered in and around the Strait of Gibraltar as the likely location for the lost city. Now the part about it being larger than Libya and Asia put together is a bit weird, for we know the landmass like the near the Strait of Gibraltar could not have existed like that, right? There's no way that uh, a second larger continent than Asia existed, but it's hard to tell precisely what he had in mind here, like how large Libya and Asia was considered to be by him at this time, or if this was just an exaggeration, or if he was re referring to maybe another landmass in the middle of his conversation there, but we can touch on this a bit more later. And the rest of the writing actually goes into more detail about the specifics of the island of Atlantis. It talks about, and, and again, this is beyond what I just read to you here. He, he continues to talk. It's less succinct. It kind of goes off on tangents. But eventually he'll start talking about what it looked like, the culture, what they ate, their mining, um, and stuff like that. So there, there is more to it if you guys are really interested. I have this linked on my Facebook page. Um, but what, anyways, he keeps going and... Uh, what he describes is uh, the structures, the design of the city, uh, its harbors, uh, like I said, the cultures, the animal, uh, sorry, the culture and the animals, uh, the mining. Um, from what is described, we know that Atlantis was a ring of three or more islands all surrounding each other, concentric rings, right? So you can visualize it. There's one inner landmass where it is said that a grand temple was built. 
and then there's a circular landmass surrounding it with water in between it and then beyond that ring there's another land ring larger that's surrounding that and again with water in between and it keeps going right and kind of think of I guess like the Target logo right <laughs> for those of you who like shop at Target right it kind of looks like the Target logo except with a couple extra rings um, and then connecting all of these rings is one long straight canal that runs from the ocean all the way into the innermost landmass. And Plato gets really specific in his transcription of this, describing exact distances and depths of these of these harbors. And apparently, this was part of the genius of the civilization, and that they were so advanced for their time. They had this brilliant form of commuting, a commerce system with boats in and out of the city all the time. Uh, their culture was refined and elegant. Uh, their mastery of resources, plants, and animals was also ahead of its time. Uh, it said that they controlled elephants and bulls and other native animals. Um, the writings also mentioned the notoriety that the Atlanteans uh, garnered in the world and that people from across the seas would travel to Atlantis to trade uh, for their ore and their plants and whatnot. And of course, we have that tragic end to this civilization and that apparently one day and in one day and night of torrential rains and earthquakes and floods, the entire city fell beneath the waves. And there's that interesting end part there where he describes the sea, it's now being impassable, uh, and it's covered over with mud, right? This little tidbit has also pushed some researchers to certain areas that could match that description. So, with that segue, I will now jump into the most common theories when it comes to the long-lost legendary city of Atlantis. Okay, first off, let's get this one out of the way. The theory that Atlantis is purely a myth. It never existed. And let's look at the merits of this. The first thing that uh, this entire legend goes off of is solely the word of Plato, right? And let me describe where he heard this all from. In his writings, he actually is transcribing a conversation between Socrates and this man named Critias. Now, it's actually Critias who has the story of Atlantis, who's actually speaking. It is said that Critias heard and memorized this story from his grandfather, who had in turn memorized it as a tale told to him by Solon. Solon was the wisest of the seven sages of Greece, at least that's what it says in the writing here. So in essence, this is a story passed down through generations, and it's hard to tell where the actual you know, primary sources begin. This shaky origin for this uh, for the story already turns a lot of people away. There's not enough evidence to suggest that it has roots in fact. Many say it is simply a story told to evoke a lesson about the rise and fall of civilizations, which kind of makes sense to me, you know, and, and when I think back to what I thought about Atlantis a month ago, that's kind of where it ended for me. It's like, I think maybe it was just a, a, a tale, a fictional tale. But after diving deeper and actually reading what Plato wrote, it's really hard for me to imagine that anymore. It isn't written as if it's something of fiction. It's written as fact, uh, with you know locations, dates, exact measurements, etc., etc. And I know how I feel about something doesn't really count for much, but deep in my bones, reading the words of Plato, I don't think he ever wrote this to be anything other than historical fact. There's even a part at the beginning of the whole conversation where Critias is talking to Socrates, and he says something along the lines of, you know, what I'm about to tell you, Socrates, is nothing but 100% fact. This is the history of a great civilization, yada, yada, yada. So it's even said, 
like before the conversation starts. So my inclinations really point in that direction. But it is true that, you know, we haven't found it yet. We really haven't found anything. You would think that a super advanced ancient civilization that ruled for centuries would leave a mark, or more of a mark, than just a story told in one of Plato's writings. But we really come up empty-handed. I mean, there is one thing, one little clue that goes beyond Plato, but I will have to go into more in that, more into that later. But in any event, yeah, all of these negatives begin to pile up for a lot of people enough for them to just say, well, Atlantis is a bust, a complete myth. The lack of evidence speaks for itself. And I can understand the skepticism here, I really can. I mean, pop culture has taken the whole idea of Atlantis and has fantasized it so much, I think it's only natural for people to assume that the whole, you know, Atlantis, all of Atlantis is just a fantasy to begin with. But I will echo what I said before, this is kind of what we thought about the city of Troy too, until we actually found it. And I'm a firm believer in the old philosophy that almost every old story, no matter how fictitious it sounds, contains a kernel of truth somewhere. And I personally think that there has to be a kernel of truth to this story. That Critias wasn't just spouting off nonsense. That the origin of the story has roots in reality. And for that reason, I will now move on to a couple other theories that establish, yes, Atlantis really did exist, but where? So the second theory I'll put forward here is that the lost city of Atlantis is actually just the modern-day island of Crete. Crete is a rather long, rectangular, and large island off of the southern tip of Greece. Uh, way back in the time that Atlantis might have been around, the island was inhabited by people that we know today as the Minoans. Their civilization is well-researched, but I wouldn't go as far as to say it's well-understood or well-known. And, you know, this is a really long time ago, mind you, so it's possible that there were these ancient Minoans that were actually just the Atlanteans that were referred to by Plato. And here's where many people draw this possibility. First off, recent archaeological digs have uncovered more and more about this Minoan civilization, and we're beginning to understand just how advanced they were in comparison to what was around them, right? They possessed multi-story buildings, grand military ships and docks, uh, temples, uh, further evidence of vast trade networks, all of which matches the descriptions of Atlantis. Moreover, a smaller island just north of Crete called Santorini was the site of a grand volcanic eruption that occurred around 1600 BC. This volcanic eruption would have caused massive earthquakes and tsunamis, the power of which definitely would have been felt by the inhabitants of Crete, which is just south of it. It is known that the powerful civilization that lived there did indeed falter around this time. It could have been due to the eruption, but at any rate, after that 1600 eruption, there were only a couple small villages here and there that we know of on that island. So it's thought that the eruption had a heavy, heavy hand in this, right? Easy parallels are drawn here with the events that are described in Plato's tale of Atlantis. Is it possible that these ancient Minoans were simply referred to as Atlanteans in ancient Greece? And it sounds really, really good, right? But there are a couple things missing here. Firstly, the island of Crete is not shaped like Atlantis or situated where it should be, according to Plato. There's some recent research that has attempted to reconstruct what Crete looked like before the eruption, 
and there is some reason to believe that there could have been a circular portion of the island that's no longer above sea level, but this is yet to be definitively proven. Uh, going further, the size and the timeline don't quite, don't quite match up with Plato's descriptions, but this too possibly could have an explanation. A uh, researcher and an author interested in Atlantis by the name of Willie Lay has brought forward a few good points, actually. He calls, in, uh, he calls into question the accuracy of the translations because this original story of Atlantis was first translated from Egyptian to Greek and then from Greek to modern English or whatever modern language you want to read it in, and these translations could be the cause for some of the confusion. Firstly, the line that Atlantis was larger than Libya and Asia, he points out, could actually be translated to more powerful rather than larger, so more powerful than Libya or Asia, which could definitely have been true and, you know, allow for the island of Atlantis to be as small as Crete or even smaller, right? If we're just thinking it's more powerful, then it could be as small as we think it is. Moreover, the timeline differences could be a, a result of bad translation of numbers in that the dates and the numerics could have been one decimal place off when you're moving it from Egyptian to Greek. This could then line up the timeline to be right during the eruption of the Santorini. Also, it's said that, the Atlant uh, that Atlantis had elephants, and based on the current knowledge of historical geographic distribution of the Asian elephant, it is surmisable to think that they very well could have been in that region of Crete, uh, but it would have been maybe a little bit of a stretch. So depending on how many of these stretches you want to make, Crete could be a perfect candidate for the location of Atlantis, but there's still a couple of little details that nagged me when it came to this theory. First, Crete is really not even close to the Strait of Gibraltar. And two, the whole mud business. Like, it was clearly stated that Atlantis is now covered over by mud. And this is not the case for Crete. Like, it's still there. It's still standing above sea level, right? Is there a location that can check all of the boxes? And it's absolutely covered by mud? Well, listener, <laughs> I'm glad you asked because, yes, there absolutely is. The final theory I will give you here, the one that I support wholeheartedly, is that Atlantis was located in modern-day Spain, more specifically the southwest tip of Spain, in an area now known as the Doñana National Park. This area is a sunken expanse of wetlands, marshes, and dunes that leads up to the coastline and then out into the Atlantic Ocean. Now, right off the bat, it's sounding good. One, it is near the Strait of Gibraltar. Two, it looks out over the Atlantic Ocean, which is, you know, exactly why they're called the Atlanteans. It's, it fits the description. And then three, it's in an area that uh, very well back during this time was a bay. It's heavily thought by, uh, by uh, historians and, and geographic researchers in this area that this area of Spain actually was underwater during this time, and, but has since then eroded into mudlands. So we have that description of mud matching up. This location was originally put forward as a theory way back in the 16th century and has since then been supported and investigated by countless searchers. A recent scientific documentary by Syndica Syndicato TV further investigated this theory and came up with some encouraging results. Firstly, satellite imagery of the area actually reveals slight sunken outlines of an area that looks heavily reminiscent of the Atlantis descriptions given by Plato. There are these rings, roughly three of them, all surrounding one another, concentric rings, right, with a central landmass, 
and moreover it looks like there could be a rectangular disturbance beneath the ground that may actually be that central temple. Secondly, the team took ground scans of this area and found that the earth underneath these, these suspected ring areas had indeed been, been manipulated in some way. So when you zoom out, you have this area that was once a bay, now is mud, in, uh, with circular regions in the middle, uh, right with this temple supposedly right in the middle on that middle landmass, and so it just fits perfectly, right? And geographically speaking, it's also in the perfect spot for most of the plants, the mining, the ores that were coming out that were being described, uh, the farming that was being described by Plato. I mean, now, the elephant thing doesn't really make sense, right? That elephants probably weren't that far over in Spain. Uh, I mean, who knows? Things could have been transferred. I, you know, things could have been way different than what we believe now is their geographic distribution. But elephants do seem a bit weird. But what it looks like more and more to me is that not everything in Plato's writings about Atlantis should or can be taken as pure fact. Again, he was hearing this story from Critias, who had heard this story from his grandfather, who had been told this story from Solon. So, you know, and then Solon probably got that from somewhere else. I mean, you guys know how this kind of stuff works, right? It's like a game of telephone. Some of the facts and the details can get blurred along the way, while the main chunk of the story may still be true, the details can be a little bit off. And I think that is exactly what happened here. I, I think that's most likely what happened. It's unreasonable to think that every single detail is exactly on, right? I think there has to be a little bit of give and take. Um, and you know, some of the details don't line up with reality and it throws us off. And a lot of people who are investigating, who are searching for Atlantis, they get thrown off by these missing details, these wrong details. And, you know, they look at everything, they try to do the location, and, and then they just end up being wrong. And it's not their fault. It's just that we can't, we can't really know what is truth and what is maybe a little bit exaggerated or just straight up false. Um, but again, I, I will say that I think there is a kernel of truth behind it all. I do believe that a civilization like Atlantis really did exist. And get this, this location in southern Spain in the mud, this hypothesized location, is also the hypothesized location of the ancient and biblical city of Tartessos. Now, Tartessos is literally described as a semi-mythical city in that very few concrete details are known, but most of the stories of Tartessos are so numerous, um, so verifiable in other ways, that it had to have existed, right? And most historians would agree upon this point, I, would, I, I, think. I think. I don't think there's a ton of historians out there that are trying to argue Tartessos never existed in the slightest. Um, but of these historians, many of them put them, the Tartessos civilization, in that Doñana National Park, where we also think that Atlantis might be. And so you see these historians, and you, you, you can picture what they're thinking, right? They think they know where Tartessos was, and they see all of these other uh, searchers poking around in the Doñana National Park saying they're finding Atlantis, and they're probably thinking to themselves, well, no, you're just finding Tartessos. Everything you find there is going to be a remnant of the city of Tartessos. And... This is where I came up with something, and I, I'm not going to purport that I'm the first person to come up with this. There are many people that share my opinion, but I thought, well, man, they're probably, they probably are finding the same city, but Tartessos and Atlantis are one and the same. I think that both of these mythical ancient civilizations have so little in the way of facts that it was easy for history to kind of just blend them together and lose track of which was which. 
And besides, every nation, every culture has a different name for different places and different languages. So who's to say that somewhere along the way, Atlantis, as far as it as it came to Greek, as we as the Greeks knew Atlantis, right? They thought that that was Atlantis, but everyone else and we today think of it as Tartessos. But in reality, we're just talking about the same civilization. They're described to inhabit the same area, same type of agriculture, military might, mining, culture around the same time. I mean, in my mind, the link is clear. But what it's really going to take is further archaeological effort and evidence to definitively prove anything. And don't worry, future digs are very much in the works in Doniana National Park. So we may be getting answers soon, but for now, the debate rages on about the truth behind Atlantis, because again, there's many who believe it's not even in Spain. So if there was one way, you know, if there was only one way to prove its existence, because there's still some that believe it doesn't exist at all, and, you know, and they're always going to come back to that, well, all we have is the word of Plato, that's all we have to go on, who's to say he wasn't making it up? And, you know, that's where it comes to me where I'm just like, man, if we could only have one little link, one other reference, one little clue that goes beyond the word of Plato somewhere out there to help us prove that this this Atlantis civilization may have actually existed. And guess what? Uh, this actually was found recently, and it's really, really exciting. In the mid-region of Spain, there's a famous Tartessan archaeological tourist site that's known as Cancho Roano. In it, there are several buildings that still stand in remarkable shape. So it's a great, obviously, it's a great Tartessan monument. It's, it's amazing for that, just in and of itself. Um, and I've already tried to link this Tartes, the Tartesso to Atlantis, right? Um, so in this region, this Cancho Roano region, we have a building made by the Tartessans, um, that I believe are maybe just the Atlanteans, right? So if we're to believe that they built this building, which is supposedly was supposedly built around the 5th century BC, so this is after Atlantis fell, right? If I'm to believe that they the Atlanteans left Atlantis and maybe moved northward into Spain, right? They would maybe want to remember their history, the old... Uh, Atlantis city that they had built that they were proud of right they wanted to remember it to remember their heritage where they came from so and it's it's really really cool there is a drawing a funny little drawing a symbol that is on a wall at the entrance of this of this monument here and this drawing is of a warrior that's standing in front of three concentric circles with a little mass at the center all with a connecting little line or harbor between them, just like the description, the layout of Atlantis. A literal drawing exactly of what is described by Plato. And again, this drawing on this monument in Contrarano was drawn in the 5th century BC, way before uh, Plato was ever even alive. So this drawing of Atlantis, later we also have the writing of Atlantis, I think that is a bit of a link that we can go off of to say, okay, maybe maybe there really is a kernel of truth behind the idea of Atlantis, and we just have to find proof. All right, let's jump into our last mystery here, Beneath the Waves. I bring to you the baffling disappearance of Amelia Earhart. You've all heard her name, the most famous female aviator to have ever lived, and very well deserved. In her lifetime, she completed many firsts and showed many that not even the sky is the limit. 
She was born July 24th, 1897, and from a very young age showed an interest in adventuring and thrill-seeking. This would eventually manifest itself in flying, a career in which she possessed both extreme passion and extreme talent. Because of this, she collected accolade after accolade, record after record. Uh, the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, first woman to fra uh, fly across the Pacific, highest altitude flown by a woman, and, and many others. Um, and as, as her historic career pressed on, she eventually set her sights on the most daring adventure yet. She wanted to become the first human, male or female, to ever fly around the world at the equator. And as ambitious as it was, it would end up being the last flight on which she would ever embark. The first stretch of the journey took off from Oakland, California to Miami. From Miami to South America, then over to Africa, and so on and so forth. As she trudged on, her fame grew, and soon the whole world was aware of her attempt. Eventually, she made her way to Papua New Guinea and prepared for an ambitious flight across the Pacific to a small island called Howland Island. Uh, this island was situated between Australia and Hawaii and would serve as a good in-between point before the last leg of her journey. So her and her navigator, Fred Noonan, loaded up the plane and took off towards the little island on July 2nd, 1937. Almost immediately, they ran into the problems. Uh, the day was heavily overcast, which made visibility and navigation very tricky. Uh, to make matters worse, uh, it was later discovered that the map Earhart and Noonan were given to find Howland Island was inaccurate. It was off by almost 60 miles. They also faced a constant headwind that would have depleted their fuel much faster than anticipated. And in a perfect storm of tragedy, the radio communications that day were almost completely non-functional between the plane and the U.S. ships that were in the water. After hours of waiting and waiting after they took off, a nearby ship finally picked up a transmission from Earhart. And it was her voice saying this, We must be on you now, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low. Been, been un unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. From there, the transmission completely stopped, and after a while, the U.S. was forced to initiate a search for the pair, and they assumed they must have ran out of fuel and ditched somewhere in the ocean. The difficulty was pinpointing exactly where they went down, because again, where the U.S. thought she was, where she thought she was, and where she actually was, was all very different. So a $4 million rescue operation begins, involving 66 aircraft and 9 ships, but after over two weeks of searching, the U.S. was forced to withdraw from the area and officially pronounce the pair as dead. To this day, it is a complete mystery as to the ultimate fate of Earhart and Noonan, but several clues here and there can point us in a few different directions. So with that, I will now cover the popular hypotheses when it comes to the fate of Amelia Earhart. So the first and probably most intuitive theory here is that the duo simply crashed their plane into the wide open ocean and drowned there shortly thereafter. Uh, with conditions so bad and fuel running so low, they were forced to ditch before ever finding Howland Island. Sure, they may have survived the impact, sure, they may have also climbed on to their life raft that they had with them, but ultimately they died at sea at an unknown location, and it's going to be tough to ever determine where that might be. After the fact, calculations on their fuel supply, their flight path, and flying conditions point to the conclusion that their plane must have run out of gas some 35 to 100 miles off the coast of Howland Island. 
if I'm not mistaken, I believe that it's actually the official position that the U.S. government has taken with regards to her final flight. Uh, so the, the kind of final stance is that they died out in the ocean. And in many respects, yes, this is certainly, it certainly could have been what happened. Searching for evidence for this, though, becomes really, really hard because, you know, her plane could be anywhere out there at the bottom of that vast ocean, again, in a huge search area. So it would take an enormous leap of luck and chance for anyone to ever find the wreckage somewhere out there. But until any other theory gains more traction, this is going to be the explanation that many point to. But it's not the explanation that all people point to. The second theory I'll jump into here is that Amelia Earhart and Noonan were actually captured by the Japanese around the Marshall Islands. Remember, this is 1937, so while World War II hasn't quite broken out yet, things are definitely in the workings. So perhaps something shady went down. Some say that Amelia Earhart was actually a spy this whole time, and she was actually uh, collecting information uh, in the Japanese territories before she was captured. This act of being captured takes many forms with this theory. Some say her plane was shot down and she died. Some say that she was captured out of the sky and then flown back to the Marshall Islands where they became prisoners. And this later uh, mentioned theory here actually gained a lot of traction when a photo emerged that alleg allegedly showed Noonan and Earhart standing on a Japanese dock shortly after being captured. When facial recognition experts took a look, it was confirmed that these two people in the picture could be good matches for Earhart and Noonan. So the theory spread like wildfire at this point. But very recently, in 2017 actually, a Japanese blogger following the case located the original print of the picture in an archived library section and proved to the public that the picture was actually taken in 1935 and therefore could not be of Earhart and Noonan after their crash in 37. So just as quickly as this theory picked up steam, it seemed to lose that steam. Some still deny the claim that it was taken in 35, you know, saying, oh, there's no way to verify that, and thus they just still hold on to the theory that somehow she ended up into the hands of the Japanese. Little is agreed upon about what happened to her from there, but all I know is that for me, this theory seems like one of the least likely, personally, and that's why I will now be uh, bringing forward the most likely theory in my eyes as to what happened to Earhart and Noonan. This is the theory that Earhart crashed near a little island called Nikamaroro and made her way onto the island as a castaway, doomed to spend some agonizing time there before finally dying of starvation, dehydration, or anything in between upon the island. So where's the evidence for this, you may ask? Well, speculation around this island first began in October of that same year, 1937, so roughly three months after the crash. A British vessel and a military man was sailing around Nicomaroro Island when he decided to take a photograph of a ship that had long since run aground on the reef there. The ship had nothing to do with Amelia Earhart, it was just this random British ship that had been crashed there for a while, so he decided he's going to take out his camera, snap a photo, and then he goes on his merry way. But wait. A bit later, something is noticed in the far left of the photograph, sticking up out of the water. Experts would later say that this heavily resembles the landing gear of Earhart's plane, the plane that she was flying. And it's possible from this photo, if people are to believe that this is the landing gear of her plane, that perhaps that is where she crashed it and she made it onto the island. Well, as you can guess, teams immediately went out and searched for any clues to verify this possibility. 
and they did find some things, so let's go over them. First, let's mention uh, that the initial search and rescue operation that uh, that was that occurred after the crash, it is documented that a U.S. plane flew over Nicomororo Island in search of the pair. It was reported that the pilot noticed signs of habitation on the island, but no signs of distress or people out and about, so the pilot just flew on. Little did he know, the island had not been inhabited in over 40 years, so literally any sign of recent habitation is notable, but this realization was too little too late. Also, there were some sporadic reports of people picking up strange radio communications. Uh, there was one girl in particular that said she had heard a voice identify itself as Amelia Earhart and that she needed help. Um, However, there are sporadic radio communications all over the world happening, the people claiming that they were Amelia Earhart, and so there's really no way to verify this or be sure that this was legitimate. Uh, when it comes to other clues about the little island, uh, searchers found remnants of a campfire, actually, on the North Beach. Close by this, they also found a jar of freckle cream, which uh, was known to be carried around by Earhart. Um, also near the campfire, most notably enough, they actually ended up finding bones as well, human bones, which was extraordinary, right? So they immediately send these bones off to be tested. A physician named D.W. Hoodless receives them and shortly thereafter declares that the bones belonged to a short, stocky male of European descent and therefore could not have been Earhart or Noonan. Needless to say, this kind of takes the wind out of everybody's sails, but, you know, they were so close, now it seems they're so far, these bones don't match, uh, and no one can find the plane underwater either. So, with all this coming together, and then the fact that they're not finding any more clues on the island, the case goes cold for decades. But guess what, my dear listeners, right now, right this instant, is a great time to be alive if you're interested in Amelia Earhart's case. In in Amelia Earhart's case, Uh, it's not a good time to be alive, literally for almost any other reason, but... (laughs) For this one reason, let us have this. There's a lot of stuff happening right now with her case uh, that has been that has uh, really lit it up and made it red hot again. So, over um, back in 2014, one of these first recent developments, it was revealed that a 23 by 19 inch of metal plating was found on Nicomororo, uh, and this piece of metal was identified as part of a plane. Moreover, part of the exact model of plane that Earhart was flying that day. Secondly, in 2018, arthropologist Richard Jantz re-examined the measurements of the bones that were discovered way back when, and it came to a very interesting new conclusion. He said that the methods that were used back then, the methods used by D.W. Hoodless, were unreliable and poorly understood, and that modern methods of analysis were much more precise. And with these modern techniques, Jantz declared that the bones found on Nicomororo Island actually may have been female. More than that, this analysis was then compared directly with photographs and measurements of Amelia Earhart, and I'll quote it here, This analysis reveals that Earhart is more similar to the Nicomororo bones than 99% of individuals in a larger reference sample. It strongly supports the conclusion that the Nicomororo bones belonged to Amelia Earhart. Which is crazy exciting. I mean, like, what more do we really need? That seems pretty cut and dry, but it's not 100%. Uh, we also really could use the plane to connect it all, right? We really need to find that plane to be 100% sure. And like I said, many think that that 1937 photograph uh, showed its landing gear sticking up out of the water. 
And so you might think, okay, well, let's go search that exact location, right? Well, in 2019, we did that. I mean, we really did that. Like, we freaking got the guy who found the Titanic, Robert Ballard, to bring all of his high-tech stuff over to Nicomaroro and search for the plane. Uh, but what we discovered was a little bit disappointing, to say the least. Uh, this little, unassuming, flat beach island is actually the top of an extremely tall underwater mountain that reaches thousands and thousands of feet down below. Uh, and this, this mountain is filled with chutes and caverns and caves, any of which could easily hide this small little aircraft. So they did as much as they could. They sonared as much of the mountainside as they could, but they could not locate the plane. Granted, they only went so far down, about 3,000 feet, and they only searched that one side of the island where that photograph was taken, so there's still a chance that it's somewhere. I mean, the tides could have really done anything to this plane, and it could be lodged deep into, like, a cavern um, so that sonar doesn't pick it up, or it could have really just been broken apart so thoroughly that nothing but scraps of metal are floating around now. You know, who knows? But with my bet, with everything that we know, I really do think that it is Nicomaroro Island that served as the final resting place for Earhart and Noonan. There's just so much evidence that points to it. And it's kind of harrowing, right? It's kind of, kind of a harrowing thought to imagine this. It's kind of something out of a movie almost, or like Lost. This plane is, is running out of fuel and these two experienced aviators decide that they need to ditch their plane as close as possible to an island to increase their chances of survival. Uh, they crash right at the coastline. They trudge their way onto the beach. They set up camp. They make a fire. Uh, they're making intermittent radio calls, desperately crying out for help, but no one comes. And slowly they succumb to the elements and die right there on the beach. And one thing you may ask, I know one thing that I asked, is like, what about that U.S. plane that flew over the island during the search operation, right? He said that he looked out, saw signs of habitation, but no signs of distress, and then just flew on. If Amelia and Noonan were there, like we think they were, why wouldn't they have, like, waved their hands and drawn an SOS in the sand or done anything to make themselves known to this pilot that flew over? And I kind of thought of something that maybe seems a little bit plausible, at least, and that's the idea that maybe they got injured on the crash. Maybe even Noonan died on the crash, on the landing. Um... Because again, there's no sign that Noonan ever made it to the island. All we have are bones and things belonging to Amelia Earhart. We don't have anything from him. So he might have actually just died in the crash, which would make subsequent survival by Amelia harder. And it would also make, um, if, if, if we're allowing that he might have died in the crash, she probably got really injured too, right? Maybe some broken limbs here and there. So I think that she like barely made it to the island barely could set up this campfire and then beyond that like you know scavenging for food and water for long-term survival that really wasn't an option so i think maybe she died early on due to this to these um this to the situation coming about with the injury um and i think maybe that's why when you know when the plane flew over no one was there to wave their hands because everyone was dead by then and then when three months later when that british ship and that military man took the photograph she wasn't there because she had already been long dead. She wasn't there to flag him down or anything to that effect. And, and in my mind, that at least ties up a couple of loose ends. Um, but don't you fret. I mean, we still may get concrete answers to this mystery. For as we speak, there is further work being conducted, not only on the bones to provide more evidence of a match, but teams are also gathering and planning to conduct future searches in and around Nicomaroro Island to hopefully finally find that damn plane. 
So keep your eyes open on the news because actually any day now you could wake up to headlines that the long search for Amelia Earhart is finally over. Well, there we have it, guys. That will bring this episode to a close. I certainly hope that you enjoyed this montage of underwater mysteries, uh, each of which I think we will get more answers to in the coming years, so that's really exciting. But in any event, I will bring it up again. Yes, this will be my last episode, at least for a while, at least for a little while. Um, I've had so much fun creating these episodes and releasing them for you all. I, I really, really have. You know, if I could make a life out of doing this, you know I would, but nonetheless, I have to focus on a few other things right now, and I sincerely hope that you guys can understand. Um, and I know that I say this every week, but thank you, thank you for everyone that has listened to me, even just a single episode. It really means the world to me. And, you know, don't despair. I, I declare that this is not the last you've heard of Nick on History's Great Mysteries. I will be back to blow your mind sooner or later, so just hang on for me. And in the meantime, I beg of you, stay curious out there and just do your freaking best, all right? I'll see you guys.